Paul Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. So my guest today is an old friend of mine and co-author, a polymath, a professor of mathematics, a writer and a jolly good fellow, all the way from Cork in Ireland, Des McHale. So Des, hello to you. Hi Paul, how are you? <laughs> Very good. So, um, can you please tell me a little bit about when and where you were born, and maybe a few words about your childhood? Well, I was born in 1946, which is quite a long time ago now. You can guess how old I am. Um, I was born in the west of Ireland in a little town called Castlebar, and my parents were both of farming stock, really. They would have grown up on the land, but then they moved off the land and came into town. And my mother was a hairdresser and hairstylist, and my father was a psychiatric nurse, or as he used to describe himself, keeper of lunatics, which is a much more uh, <laughs> colourful term. Um, I think I was a nerd from a very early, I was sent to school at the age of three and a half, I think, just to get rid of me, because I was always asking stupid questions and doing stupid things. And uh, I liked mathematics from a very early age. My mother said I used to sort of ask everybody in the house how many potatoes they wanted for lunch, and I'd make up a little chart, and then I'd come to her and say, we got to cook eight potatoes, nine potatoes today, Mum. And I used to help my father in the garden. And I remember planting cabbage plants. And all the cabbage plants had to be exactly parallel to each other and all the same distance into the ground before I'd allow my father to cover them up with earth. So I must have been a bit of a funny kid. There was no mathematical or scientific tradition in my family. But from an early age, I was very interested in counting, in numbers, in geometric pictures and diagrams. So I suppose uh, that's why I went on to become a mathematician, really. But uh, I think I was a loner. Um, I didn't play very much with other children. I played maybe very much in my imagination and my parents were a little bit worried about me, I think. that I, I still don't socialise very much. I, I much prefer my own company to anybody else's. And uh, well, I, I, I am a book collector. I sort of collect humour mostly. I started getting interested in humour when I was a teenager and I decided I was going to write the world's largest and best joke book. And uh, I still have little copy books. I used to write down everything funny that I heard and saw and read or saw on radio or, or television. But I, I'm, I'm a big book collector, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a lovely vice. I mean, it, it's not harmful as far as we know to your health or to your, to your mental health. The trouble is, my house is literally filled with books. Yes. I don't know how my, I don't know how my wife puts up with it. Every room, including all the bathrooms, are filled with books. But uh, I try to get rid of them, and it's very hard to part them. It's like sort of getting rid of your own kids. You know, they're they're all personal friends, and I won't say I've read them all, maybe the thirty thousand books I have, but I've certainly browsed through all of them. And if you picked up any book, I'd be able to tell you what's in there. But uh, I never took to sort of e-books and to. Uh, Kindles and all that type of thing. I don't think it's the same. Just the feel of a book, the smell of a book, the just the whole sense of a book, I think, is one of the... I, I don't think books, as we know them, will ever be replaced. OK, tell me a little bit more about your school and who you knew there and what you did. Well, I went to school, at uh, sent to school at the age of about three and a half, and I remember arriving up the first day and being rather terrified. And when we got a break at 11 o'clock to go out and play, um, I ran home. I thought school was over. I thought that was the end of it. But some boys were sent down from the school to collect me and take me back. And uh, I never looked back, really. I, I really enjoyed school. I love it, especially mathematics and especially English and words. Uh, I became a fan of the Irish language. I speak Irish reasonably fluently. And it's it's very good to have a second language. And then when I went to secondary school, I fell in love with Latin. 
and I, I really would almost make Latin compulsory, Latin and Greek for every kid because they're they're just so rich and they're they're full of all the traditions of Western civilization. I think come from Latin and Greek. But um, I, I played a lot of sports, mostly hurling, which is an Irish game, um, Gaelic football, um, soccer football, and um, mostly tennis. I, I really fell in love with tennis, and I played tennis. All my life until I, my bones started to creak a bit and I couldn't. And I was reasonably good at that. Like I played for club tennis. I played interprovincial. I played intervarsity. And uh, I think tennis is a, a really wonderful game. Again, it's mathematical. It's full of angles and lobs and curves and strategies and everything else. I'm, I've been in Cork for the last 45 years. And the first time I ever came to Cork was to play intervarsity tennis. And, uh, you know, I, I fell in love with the place then. But it's again, I wasn't a complete nerd in terms of uh, just studying all the time. I think sport is really very, very important. And again, it gives you a drive, I think, to win. Of course, you've got to be sportsmanlike as well. But I think that just giving a kid the feeling, yes, come on, you can do it, you can win, you're good at something, and then take a beating if you happen to get beaten. I think that's a very important lesson in life. I believe you had a famous schoolmate with you. Yeah, I, th there was um, three or four classes behind me was a man called Enda Kenny, who was just retired as the Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister, and I knew him quite well. And he presented an award for mathematics to me recently, which was great. And, um, he, you know, it, it, it's funny to see somebody that you know, a kid that you play football with, rising to the very top uh, in politics, and then seeing him on television every so often, talking to um, Angela Merkel or to Theresa May or whatever. And you, you really feel that, Things like that are possible if you have the ambition. And uh, he was a very clever kid. He wasn't particularly good academically, but uh, he was very shrewd. And I mean, everybody will remember him as a very good humoured person. He seemed to charm people. He seemed to charm other politicians. And I think that was that was one of the reasons he got to the top. Um, a lot of my friends played football at, at high level. They played tennis at high level. So, I mean, in the, one of the last tennis matches I played when I was a student, we actually were drawn against the Irish Davis Cup team, which, you know, I mean, you go into a, a, a tennis match with people who are way, 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 way better than you, but you play like you've never played before. You go for everything. Every service is a hard service. And I think the lesson there is that try and go to the top in anything you actually do because you bring out the best of yourself. If you're a tennis player, for example, and you play just in your club all the time, well, then you're not going to progress very much. But if you go out and play against really top-class players, you're going to improve yourself. You're going to learn a lot. And tell me about your university career. I did my leaving certificate, which is the equivalent of the UK A-levels, when I was 16, which is quite young, because I'd gone to school very early on at um, the age of three and a half. So I wouldn't be accepted by the university. I was too young. You wouldn't be accepted until you were 17. So I went back and I repeated my leaving cert over a two-year period. I think that was one of the best things I ever did because I was able to study. I was able to relax. I increased the number of subjects I was doing. I did 10 subjects for, for leaving cert, and I did well in all of them. I had total leisure, and the teachers knew that there wasn't very much more that I could learn from them. So they just said, well, just do whatever you like for this period. So a two-year period in between school, secondary school, and university is a fantastic thing to have because when you get to university, you are way, way ahead of the people around about you, and you're not scared, and you're able to study anything you like, and you've developed and also it gave me a taste for research because I used to make up my own problems and my own research at that level and do original things, which, again, is a great training for life. I went to college in Galway, which is about 50 miles away from where I lived, and I did mathematical sciences, pure and applied mathematics. I also did chemistry and physics in the first two years. 
I, I enjoyed it enormously because it, it was doing what I wanted to do. And I think I spent most of the time studying. I didn't do anything else except study, but I enjoyed it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that was inflicted on me. It was something I wanted to do. So only after I graduated, I started to do other things, more sport and choral singing. I remember the first time I discovered choral singing, I thought that was absolutely fantastic, a way to really enjoy yourself and meet meet quite a lot of people. I think a lot of people don't know uh, the joys of co communal singing. It's absolutely marvellous, wonderful. It is It is literally perfect harmony with the people around about you. And I think that was one of the most enjoyable experiences in my youth. And then you came to England. Yes, um, after I graduated uh, from Galway in pure and applied mathematics, and I did an MSc there as well, and I did pretty well. And um, I decided that uh, I would like a career in mathematics. So I went to, to the UK, to the University of Kiel, which is in Staffordshire, which is a very interesting place because in those days, all the staff and all the students lived on campus together in a country estate at Kiel. And that was a different experience from, let's say, going to London or Belfast or anywhere else where you probably lived in an apartment or, or in, in, in student lodgings to actually be in touch with your lecturers and your students and your friends all the time in a big, beautiful country estate was, was actually a unique experience. And Kiel had this fantastic idea that you could pick any two subjects you like. You could do German and botany. You could do physiology and French, you know, and the timetable accommodated that. And the interesting thing was that at the end of first year, about 30, 40 percent of the students changed their minds about what they wanted to do. When they experienced other subjects, they thought, ah, this is not what I really want to do. I want to do something else. And they used to do very well in sort of university challenge and various things like that. Um, I remember getting my degree from, uh, being confirmed my degree by Princess Margaret, that was. And uh, again, it's a great thrill to meet royalty and to meet people like that. And I think it was very healthy living on a country estate. Now, you're a bit isolated, but we're near the motorway if you wanted to go to London or Manchester or whatever. Did you meet your wife there? Yes, I had my wife Anne there. She was doing French and uh, English, and I met her, and uh, she came back to Cork with me afterwards. And then after you got your PhD in mathematics, you became a lecturer, didn't you? That's right. Um, it was a very good time. We can thank Kennedy and the Space Race, or maybe the Russians and the Space Race, because you know Kennedy was very jealous of what the Russians had done, putting Sputnik up and putting men, men in space. And he said, right, uh, the USA is going to put a man on the moon. Now, to put a man on the moon, you've got to have lots of physicists, lots of scientists, lots of engineers. And to have lots of engineers and physicists and scientists, you've got to have lots of mathematicians to teach them. So in the 1970s, there was a worldwide boom in mathematics, and I benefited from that. And the university I came back to was Cork, and they were taking on lots and lots of new staff, which really was tremendous, like, you know, because jobs in mathematics were very, very difficult to get. But I decided I wanted to become a research mathematician, uh, a pure mathematician, but also I really enjoyed teaching mathematics. And I hope I was a good teacher because uh, I really enjoyed the whole process. And even even now, I meet people who say, you taught me, you taught me mathematics. And they will remember anecdotes and little bits of pieces I taught them 30 years ago, which really is quite nice. But the, the current uh, Irish ambassador to Mr. Trump, I taught him mathematics, Dan Mulhall. Um, the current president of UCC, he was a student of mine as well. So I'm now getting to the stage where I'm teaching uh, or have taught a lot of people who are making their mark on society. Cork is a nice place to live. And then I got interested in a man called George Boole, who was the first professor of mathematics in Cork. And uh, I decided to write a biography of him because there had been 
no biography of Boole in the 19th century. And Boole is responsible for Boolean algebra, uh, a lot of mathematics, but also his work has been turned into great effect uh, with the electronics of the, of the 20th and 21st century. So if you've got a smartphone, or you've got anything with a microchip in it or televisions or you know, any of the fantastic technologies like Skype that, that, that we have nowadays, they originated from the algebraic work that Boole did in the 19th century. And the, the enormous simplicity of what he did is absolutely staggering. I mean, he, he's, he, what he started off with, so he said, suppose you have a flock of white sheep and suppose you have another flock of white sheep and you put the two together, what do you get? And the answer is a flock of white sheep. Now, that doesn't sound very promising as a sort of piece of scientific research. But he turned this into an equation, x squared equals x, which is the basis of Boolean algebra. And an engineer called Claude Shannon came along in the 1930s and turned this into electronics. So it just shows you a very simple mathematical idea can be turned into, I mean, a revolution as far as science and society is concerned. So I was, I've just finished another book on George Boole now, a, a sort of second biography, really. And I think maybe that, that's, that's enough for the time being. But doing historical research and doing research into math, mathematics, mathematicians, is a very, very interesting thing to do. Not maybe for everybody, but the idea is to make it popular so that anybody can read it and appreciate what went on there. Yes. So how many mathematical papers have you written and how many books have you written? I, I've written about 100 mathematical papers, not all of them terribly serious. For example, um, I wrote a mathematical paper on what's the best geometric strategy for uh, holding a golf putt. You know, just little bits and things like that. But I've done a fair amount of papers on algebra and uh, geometry and also number theory. And again, you've got to do that. If you want to get promoted, if you want to have status, and that, you have got to publish. Well, when I was teaching, I suppose, maybe two to three papers per year. But since I've retired, I've upped my output enormously. I'm now publishing five to six papers per year in, in, in referee journals. So 100 doesn't take long to come, but it's, a, it's an enjoyable process. And one thing I would say to people is that you are doing something that has never been done before, as far as we know, since the beginning of the universe, if you make up a mathematical theorem. And not alone has it never been done before. If it's correct, it usually is correct, uh, you would not be contradicted. You would not be shown to be wrong. Now, take any other subject like medicine or physics or theology or anything. They correct themselves time and time again, and the thing evolves. In mathematics, it starts correct and true, and it stays that way. The theorem of Pythagoras was discovered two and a half thousand years ago. Still true, still correct. And if we're all around in a thousand years' time, probably will be still correct as well. So mm -hmm. it's a great feeling of comfort and certainty, certainty and self-assurance when you actually do a new piece of mathematics. So it, it's a, now books. Um, I haven't written too many serious books on mathematics. I mostly write on books of mathematical problem solving because mathematics, the essence of mathematics, especially for students, is solving problems. And that's why employers employ mathematicians an awful lot, because they are good problem solvers, not just in mathematics. But I think in almost any context you put them into, they will solve problems and they will get the correct answer. So what subjects have your books been on? And the, the books, well, of course, they're the biographies of of, uh, of Boole. There's the um, uh, problems, a book of problems called Superbrain Problems. But then one of the nicest things that ever happened to me was I happened to be sitting next to a guy called Paul Sloan uh, at dinner in Cork once. And we started well. chatting. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chancellor, but I mean, nice guy. Um, but anyway, um, 
he said that he did lateral thinking puzzles. And I said, gosh, I'm very interested in those. And he says, well, I'm working on another new book now. Would you like to join me? And and I did. And it was honest to God, it was one of the most fortunate things ever happened because I think we've done what? Maybe 12, 13 books at this no, stage. More than that, more and than in that. New, more than that. But I mean, certainly it, it was a turning point in my life because here was somebody that I gelled with immediately. And I'd like to think we are very different in many, many ways. And that's why we make such a good team. We criticize the hell out of each other and we contradict each other. But then we come up with a finished product that seems to have been very popular worldwide and translated into many languages. So there are some of the books that I'm, I'm proudest of. Um, I also had an idea for a series of books called Wit, and that's just collecting funny quotations. And that's actually computerized now. But the whole notion is there are about 20,000 humorous quotations there. It's the biggest collection of humorous quotations ever put together. And I'm very proud of that because they can be used by anybody and are used by most people for public speaking, for, you know, school dinners, for anything you like. Or if you just want to sound witty, buy one of these books. And you can take the stuff out. This isn't copyright. doesn't belong to anyone. And I think it's a, it's, it's a great feeling. And I like to think it's done a lot of good in the world because there is nothing better for coping with depression and poor spirits than something funny. And, if, of course, the other books I've written have been mostly on jokes, I've written about 30 books of jokes, ethnic jokes. I did Margaret Thatcher jokes, Irishman jokes, Englishman jokes, you know, and jokes need a target. So you've got to make fun about somebody. But it's a very, very healthy activity, I think, to actually joke about somebody. And of course, if the person doesn't like it and they're a bit stung, well, you don't throw a bomb back at them or a bottle. You retaliate. You, 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 you get a joke that you can tell back at the person. And that's a very healthy process, which releases a lot of tension in society. And is a lot I would put put forward quite seriously as an alternative to war, because that's what war is. It's aggression towards other people. But you do it with bombs and bullets. Now, if we could do that with jokes and humour, I think we'd have a different world completely. Do you think there's a link between mathematics and humour and puzzles? And, and is there a value, an intrinsic value in it? This is, I think, controversial. But my own experience is that if you're a problem solver or a problem poser with numbers and geometric figures, it's a very natural step to go from those to um, puzzles in general. The riddle seems to be the link. If you like asking riddles and like getting answers, then you probably have a foot in both the mathematics and then riddles tend to become, become humorous. Um, the link between humor and mathematics is maybe a little bit more tenuous, but I, I certainly take part in that link very actively. And my experience is that mathematicians in general have a very good sense of humor. Not always in the public image. I mean, you would get the image of the absent-minded professor of mathematics that's not the case, usually. Mathematicians usually are quite alert. I do think that they're quite serious, though. They tend to be quite serious. Although informally, my experience is that mathematicians have a very, very good sense of humor. And, you know, they, they use this all the time. I've done a book of mathematical humor called Comic Sections. And it's about the only book of mathematical humor that's, uh, you know, been published and, and, and widely read. I think it's because mathematicians like other people to take them seriously. Therefore, maybe they don't indulge in humor as much as they would like to. But I know at conferences, I mean, there is an awful lot of humor. And um, you've spoken on radio a lot, haven't you? Back in 1970s, I was very interested in, in, in comedy. And I wrote to um, various radio stations and asked, could I do some programs on comedians? And the basic idea was to take a comedian, analyze their style, uh, talk about their life and then play their best extracts. 
And uh, Irish television um, and radio uh, took me up on this. And I had a, for about 10 years, I had a, a program, maybe six, seven times a year, in which I would play the very best of Spike Milligan or Bob Newhart or Joan Rivers or something like that. And it was extremely popular. Now, these things took a lot of time to put together because you can't just sort of put a lot of records or CDs down the collection and put the, put the thing together. You've got to think about it a lot. Now, a lot of people didn't like the analysis. They, they would say, let's play the comedy, let's hear it. But I think comedy improves if you analyze it a little bit, if you see what's going on there. And there was a friend of mine, an Irish author, and he said to me, look, you shouldn't analyze comedy. It's a bit like cutting a skylark's throat to see what makes it sing. And I thought that was a very good metaphor, but I, I, I wouldn't agree with it. I think the more you study comedy, the better. Now, in Cork, I've been responsible for putting together what is now the world's largest collection of comedy and humor on in books, on discs, vinyl, the whole works. And we have over 20,000 items now, which is part of the research library at the university. And anybody who wants to come is allowed to go in there and sort of read this material, listen to this material, and less material. And we've had several international conferences on humour at which I've spoken, because there is a whole academic layer of comedy. Now, maybe not for everybody's taste. It's a very, very interesting insight into what makes comedians, why, why do we need comedy, why do we laugh? And my ambition, which I don't think I'll ever realise, I still like to have an ambition, is that I will be able to analyse comedy in a sort of mathematical way that you could actually look at a script and say, right, this has got the correct algebraic structure. It's going to be funny at the end of the day. <laughs> now, of course, I mean, now that's that's a big ambition. I've done some little things in this direction, and uh, they're quite technical. Of course, what's missing there is the psychology of the performer. I mean, some performers can just come out on the stage and stand there and say nothing, someone like Tommy Cooper, and they're funny, and people start to laugh immediately because this is a funny person. Others depend almost completely on the funniness of their material. And if they, if you can get that, if you can get the two together, then you've got a great comedian. Who are your and, greatest um, comedian hero? Well, I suppose uh, uh, it's very hard to say immediately. Ken Dodd, I, I'm a great admirer of, but he's, he's always that. Joan Rivers, who died fairly recently, was to me one of the greatest comedians that's ever lived. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, not his sort of sitcom, but his stand-up comedian yeah. stuff. Uh, and they're... A lot of American stuff, very good. I don't like an awful lot of the modern alternative comedians. I, I think they're scared to upset or offend anybody. So they tell you lots of funny anecdotes about, about their mom and what she did and what she didn't do and that type of thing. And they're afraid to have a go at people. Now, comedy must sting a little bit. But I think maybe I, I, the, the older ones, I like Chaplin a lot. I like the Marx Brothers a lot. And you notice a lot of American influence there. I think America is the great home of comedy. And talking about famous people, which famous people have you tutored or influenced and which ones did you meet an influence on you? I was when I was a student, I was friendly with a lady and she had a book with her. And we were having coffee one day and she said, I think you'd like this guy. Now, that happens a lot. You're handed a bow and you think, no, it's not for me. But she gave me a book called Understanding Media by Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan was the Canadian guru of the 1950s, 1960s. And. That book absolutely changed my life, understanding media. I just read it at one go and I thought, that's it. That's exactly the way I feel, this guy. He talked about the effect that media had on society, but he also talked about lots and lots of other things about the human psyche and how it's affected by communication. 
I absolutely worshipped McLuhan. I got all his books. I, I read his books. And then when I was a student in England, my mother used to send me in the Irish newspaper every so often. And I opened it one morning and it said, Marshall McLuhan's coming to Dublin. I thought, oh, my God. So I went to the bank, withdrew every penny out of there and headed off for for, uh, for, for, for Dublin and then showed up at the place where McLuhan was staying and he invited me in. And I had about two hours with this. I never forget that. I mean, kneeling at the feet of the guru is an astonishing experience when you agree fully with this guy. And for about two or three hours, he just talked. To, I can't remember an awful lot of actually what he said specifically. But my God, it affected my entire life. And uh, he said, what are you interested? I said, the two main interests I have are mathematics and humor. And I said, what I'm trying to do now is to apply your theories to mathematics and humor. And he, he told me a joke, which is, I, I'd never heard this joke before. And it was about a man riding along in, in the subway. And there's a girl opposite him with a very short miniskirt. And he's peeking at this girl in her miniskirt all the time. And she says to him, sir, I can see you're no gentleman. And he said, and I can see you're no gentleman, which I think is an absolutely lovely joke. It's a really nice joke. And uh, he, he talked about his theory of humor. He talked about his, his theory of, of mathematics. And I, I since then have been influenced completely. And it's absolutely influenced my entire career and my approach to things just from one man and one meeting and one lady who actually gave me a book. I might never have heard of him otherwise. So that was certainly a very big turning point in my life. That's very good. So looking back on your life, what would you say are the key lessons you'd like to share with people? What, what advice would you give to anyone starting out? Well, first of all, I, I, the biggest mystery of mankind to me is that you live your life in your own mind internally. And I have no idea if your thoughts are like my thoughts or your feelings are like my thoughts. We have no way of entering the mind of another person. So essentially, we're on our own and everybody else is on their own. So we've got this in common that we're all isolated. So I think the thing is, no matter what a person is or you think they are, I think the kinder you are to them, the better, even to give them the benefit of the doubt, because I think that's that's what you'd like. That's exactly what you'd want for yourself. So why not why not do that for other people as well? And um, you you never err very much by being too kind to people, but you do err the other way around by not being as kind as you might be. And I remember one incident. I mean, you know, if you ask me, what, what, what am I sorry for what I did? I was in an absolutely foul mood one day, absolutely foul. And I was at home and there was a knock at the door. So I went out the door and there was a little girl there and she was only about, I'd say, maybe seven or eight. And she was looking for assistance or money or whatever. And I absolutely bawled her out of it. I absolutely told her, get out of here. Get out of here. How dare you come around to my door? Which wasn't wasn't typical of the way I normally behave. So she went off. I'd never seen her again. And every day, I think, my God, shouldn't have done that. This is not about morality or sinfulness or anything. It's about just doing the wrong thing because I was in the wrong sort of mood. And this kid was completely innocent. I think she was... Romanian, she was in a foreign country, you know, and I think, my goodness, that's not the way to behave under any circumstances, no matter how you are. And I wish I'll never see her again, but I wish I could see her and just, you know, apologize to her for attacking her like that. I mean, all I had to say was, no, sorry, but I didn't. I, I sort of let my. So, I mean, I think that that's the sort of lesson you learn that you don't get opportunities like that very often and things certainly come back. And how are you going to behave today? Well, that's going to influence the way you're going to behave the day after. And be kind if you possibly can. And uh, you've got five children and two grandchildren, I believe. 
That's right. Yes, thank God. That's a blessing. And how would you like to be remembered? How would you like uh, them to think of you and others to think of you? I'd like to be remembered as the guy who didn't die. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, I think. Like you know, as well. I'd like to be remembered for that. Des McHale, thank you very much. Thank you.